Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Scott Soshka. And I'm Eben Novi williams and this is the Champions League debacle sports business podcast, The Sportacast. Yeah, it really was a uh, debacle. Huh? If you're a, a Liverpool supporter, you were stuck outside Stade de France for quite some time. Uh, I guess in the end, maybe you were okay not seeing it. But uh, <laughs> the, the game delayed, what, 35 minutes? And, you know, uh, folks in TV land don't love that <laughs> when, when people turn on a game and, you know, nice weather here in the U.S. And if I turn it on, wait, isn't the game supposed to be on? And it's delayed. And, well, I've got things to do. And, um, just debacle off the field. And once again, uh, and having talked with many, many folks associated with professional sports teams, the two things that they most often hear complaints about are ingress and egress. And I get it, sizable crowds, but it's not like you didn't know a whole bunch of people were going to show up for this match. It's it's amazing, Scott. And, and soccer obviously works a bit differently than a lot of other sports. The usually the the, the two different teams have, have their fans of two different entrances, and in games like this, they close a lot of the ones in the middle, so you're entering from two different sides of the stadium. And it does appear very clear that for the on the Liverpool side. The, the organizers, and I don't know if that's the stadium, if that's UEFA, if it's a combination of both, really didn't think it through. They were bottlenecking and funneling people uh, into very narrow walkways. There were a lot of people, it sounds like, with, with counterfeit tickets that slowed the whole process down. And you're right. When you delay a game by 35 minutes, it's frustrating for the players. It's obviously frustrating for the fans. It's frustrating for the, the pop star that did the beginning uh, opening act. It's frustrating for the media networks. And we can talk about CBS, Scott. Did you watch any of the the 35-minute delay live on CBS? I did not. As soon as I saw the game was delayed, I went back to going doing something. You know, luckily, I didn't have to be anywhere. Um, my focus group of one was out at the pool, so like I had some time to actually sit and, and watch a game. Um, but I didn't stick around to watch the coverage of the delay. To me, that's just a waste of time. So yeah, I actually what, thought that's it was... the beauty. By the way, that's the beauty of Twitter and all that. I'll, someone's going to tell me when the game's starting, right? I don't need to be sitting in front of my TV. I'll know when the game is starting. I can go do something else. Yeah, I thought there was kind of an interesting sports sports media case study in the way that CBS handled that. In that they had a, a desk inside the stadium, they were obviously aware that the game was delayed. They didn't have much information initially beyond that. So when UEFA announced that the game was delayed because the Liverpool pool fans were, were late to show up, which seems like it is uh, it, it is totally false now that we know more information. They kind of bought that hook, line, and sinker. And, and there was a lot of criticism, which I think is interesting, about how CBS, obviously a, a journalism organization, they could have sent somebody outside, 
right? They could have sent a reporter and a camera outside to see, you could see the long lines. They were all over social media. It took CBS a little bit of time to adjust to the new narrative or the real narrative, which is that this wasn't a late arriving fan problem. This was more of a uh, getting fans inside the stadium problem. And then you hate to see it, obviously, in, in all walks of, in all situations. But when, when police are using tear gas, on anybody, on ticketed uh, fans to an event. It's it's a horrible situation. So again, all, all things around the 40-minute the delay to start this game uh, was a mess from start to finish. One thing we should mention, this game was not originally supposed to be in France. This game was supposed to be in St. Petersburg. It was moved. So you can maybe understand that it that maybe some corners had to be cut in just the, the short time frame they had leading up to it. But certainly some questions UEFA has to answer moving forward. Well, there have certainly been security concerns and incidents outside Stade de France before. Yeah. So, you know, they're used to handling big events. But first and foremost, when crowds of this size gather, you know, security is going to be first and foremost, and you are going to get those bottlenecks. And uh, you just do wonder why was it the Liverpool supporters and not the Real Madrid supporters as well? Like they were, you know, tucked in the stadium, ready to go. Why one side and not the other? If it is true, if. And obviously, this can take some time. If there was some sort of mass counterfeiting going on and their tickets were not, bad pun here, Real, then you could see why there could be a problem where you're stuck at the turnstile. You're like, wait a minute, I paid whatever, and you can't, and then you can't get it. I see it. But I think it's a great lesson. Again, we have a lot of folks building new stadiums in all different sports, and you better think about ingress and egress because it can absolutely ruin the fan experience. If I'm late to a game, if I'm sitting in traffic, have you ever been to Foxborough, Evan? I have. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever sat on like the, the, the really the two lane highway? There's one way in, <laughs> one way out, right? And I have. Yeah. I was there for a playoff game a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, I th- my sister, I think she's a season ticket holder for the Patriots. And she was like, well, you know, they should sell because there would be enough people who pay. What if you, for you know, gold members, season ticket holders, whatever it is, you have a special parking lot, right? But they hold the crowd for 15 minutes. Nobody can leave. <laughs> I, I'm not saying this would be popular. Yeah. Uh, she's at least thinking along the lines of, it's really hard to get in and out of there. Really, yeah. really hard. And you're absolutely right. And, and, and you know, because we talk to all these owners, everybody who builds a new stadium says this is a priority bathrooms, ingress, egress. They all say that they're trying. Yeah. And I don't want to pick on New England because even places, and you and I have spoke to officials at the Barclays Center. Yeah. Even in a place where almost everybody takes the train, still ingress and egress and you're waiting online. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. Absolutely. And I'm not saying I know what the solution is. I'm saying is that would, if I were building a stadium, right? And if I was creating this grand facility for the billions of dollars it takes, taxpayer or not, uh, if I'm the Buffalo Bills right now, and you know maybe they have a little easier time in Buffalo, but if I'm the Buffalo Bills, uh, you, what you know is that people are going to tailgate, right? They're jumping off the RVs onto tables and things like that, right? So you know you're going to have a big crowd, and you know they're all going to try to get into the stadium at about the same time. I would put a lot of focus on how do I get in and how do I get them out. Yeah, and, and there's two things here. One is what you're talking about is is the infrastructure and the design of stadiums to make this easier. And then two is 
the staffing, right? It, it's making sure that the processes are also good enough so that you can utilize the good design. And I, and I don't know, you're right, there's been problems at this stadium in Paris before. I don't know if this is column A, this is just bad design, or if this is column B, severely understaffed people or bad protocols or whatever it is. So you kind of need both. You need the the, the infrastructure and the design, and then you also need the, the personnel and the expertise to keep the, the, the egress and ingress moving slowly. And it seems like this broke down. And, and, and Scott, this is UEFA does some of the biggest events in the world on an annual basis. Um, this is something that just can't happen. And, and it's a lesson for the Olympics. It's a lesson for the World Cup. It's a lesson for the Super Bowl. It's a lesson for everybody that puts on events where there are hundreds of thousands of people coming to a city and, and 80, 60 to 80,000 people that are trying to get to a game. This just can't happen. Question for you, and there's, I don't think you can give me an accurate answer. I'm just thinking your hypothesis here. Do you think it has gotten worse with the advent of mobile ticketing in that oftentimes the scanner won't work? I mean, I, that's happened to me a number of times. So you just see people waiting and waiting and you're standing and it's not working. Um, you know, if you're going to have mobile, as we say, it has to. To work seamlessly. Yes, and I, so I think it's gotten it's gotten more difficult in some ways and easier in, in other ways. Right now, at least, counterfeiting tickets much harder to do via mobile. So, so in some ways, if it is true that there were tens of thousands of people trying to get in with counterfeit tickets, I would imagine most of those people were holding paper tickets. Do you, do you mean sort. to tell me that UEFA was using paper tickets for this? Event? I believe that, that paper, UEFA was using paper oof, tickets for this okay. for this event. Okay. So, in some ways, it is. The, the mobile should make it harder to counterfeit. Not doesn't make it impossible, but makes it harder. But you're right. In other ways, it can be a hassle. Some people just aren't that mobile compatible. They they, they get to the top of the line. They, they fumble. They can't find the QR code. They're not exactly sure where it is. In some ways, it does make it harder. So I would imagine there's going to be some kind of massive debrief where we maybe get to the, the truth here. But again, the, the original message out of UEFA was that the Liverpool fans were just late to arrive. That seems to be categorically incorrect. Now they're saying that there were tens of thousands of people clogging up the line with counterfeit tickets. Maybe that's right. Maybe it's not. I think we're going to get that answer at some point soon. But but it also seems very possible that this was just a, uh, a poorly designed kind of route to get fans in and out. And maybe some people that were that were manning the lines that, that, that weren't properly equipped or properly trained, whatever it is. So in whiffs of plausibility, am I meant to really swallow that? for the Champions League final that Liverpool supporters were like, you know, if it's, you know, we, we don't need to go yet. Let's have one more at the top. <laughs> we're good. We're good. We'll be, if, if we show up two minutes before kickoff, everything should be fine. Like that's, that's what, like, that's what I'm supposed to believe that, you know, tens of thousands of Liverpool supporters figured, nah, we'll just get there when we get there. Yes. You're not supposed to believe that. And I think okay. some of the criticism on, on CBS that I was mentioning earlier was that they did, at least in the beginning, kind of take that at face value when sitting outside, right outside where they were, they could have very easily found some of the answers to what they were, uh, what they were inquisitive about. Scott, we can move on to the game. Uh, Real Madrid won, won nothing kind of against the pace of play. A, a really successful year for Real Madrid. In retrospect, they won the Spanish League. They win the biggest prize in European club competition as well. The Champions League for Liverpool, runner-up in the Champions League, runner-up in the Premier League. They won the FA Cup. They won the Carabao Cup. A, a very successful year for them as well. What are your takeaways now that the European soccer season is over? My takeaway is let's uh, 
let's go to the parent company. That That's my takeaway. It's one team because there are still plenty of people here in the U.S. who probably do not know that Liverpool is owned by Fenway Sports Group. Yeah. And then, you know, I know if I tell my focus group of one, hey, you know the Red Sox? It's the same folks, you know, John Henry who owns Liverpool. No, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they just don't understand that. And if we look beyond just sort of the disappointment in a 1-0 defeat in the Champions League final, the important thing, as we all know, is finishing in the top four in the EPL. Like the, there's a massive amount of difference between finishing in that championship, Champions League top four and being outside. Massive. Okay, so that's a success. Now, let's look at what Sam Kennedy has told us time and time again. What is, Liverpool, what is Fenway Sports Group poised to do? Did you know there's a you know, Fenway Sports marketing? Do you yeah. know there's Fenway Sports? Real, I, I didn't. I mean, that was a <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I glad you did. I'm, I'm so glad you, <laughs> that was really good, but it must be a taping on a Memorial day uh, early. Okay. So you got, it. okay, good. You know that Evan, are you aware that there's a Fenway sports real estate? I'll ask you. Cause now what the heck, why not? Yeah, I yes. know that Scott. Yeah. You're aware. You, you know that they are embarking on a massive real estate development outside of Fenway park. I do. Yeah. Okay. So you are also aware that, uh, Sam Kennedy tells us that these companies and more and more you're seeing it, they're platform companies, right? So, what are we in revenue on on Fenway Sports Group? What did Kurt B- Badenhausen tell us? It's like a what? It, it, I don't know what the total is, um, but it's I know a ten the, the billion teams, dollar Yeah, t- together the the the, 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 the assets the, are more than ten yeah, and that billion includes dollars. The, the Pittsburgh Penguins. Yeah, and get well. That was their most recent. And you know what they want now, right? They want an NBA team. They've yeah. been they've not exactly been secretive uh, about wanting more. So it's blue chip properties around the world, and, and you can start to see how the flywheel happens. You know, and it's the same thing, by the way, if you look at what the crafts have done at Patriot Place. I mean, you only play you know, eight times a year, eight home games in the NFL, like a couple of playoff games. I get it. Don't don't at me. But the real estate development around there, of course, is generating tons of revenue for them as well. The whole thing is a flywheel and you're, you're starting to see more and more of the entertainment districts. What more can these teams do? Let's look west to Stan Kroenke, right? Owner of Arsenal. Again, Platform company, Kroenke Sports and Entertainment, multiple teams, real estate development, media properties. Did I mention New England Sports Network? No, I did not. Did I mention they brought in capital from Redbird Capital, which brought you know Le- LeBron James and Maverick Carter converted their ownership in Liverpool now to Fenway Sports Group, sports, entertainment, content, real estate, media, the whole flywheel. You start to see how it operates. And you mentioned premium in there. That's definitely the brand here. Liverpool, according to our valuations, the second most valuable club in the Premier League at $4.1 billion. We have the Red Sox, the second most valuable club in Major League Baseball, $4.8 billion. Then we have the the the, the, the Penguins, as you mentioned, a little bit lower down. They're, they're $845 million, the 15th most valuable club in the NHL. It is not like they are going after the, the cheaper assets or own the cheaper assets in the leagues, they're going after the premium, premium brands. And and Scott, I will be fascinated to see that you know the NBA on the business side better than almost anybody. Is this the Trailblazers, which we believe may be for sale out in Oregon at some point soon, owned by the the, the family of of, of the late um, Paul Allen? Allen. Is it an expansion team? I know there's talk of Vegas. There's talk of Seattle. Is it something else? What do you think if if I'm Fenway and and I think I want an NBA team into the portfolio? What are the options right now? I was remiss, by the way, uh, even though this is NASCAR and they ran the Indy 500 this week, not to mention Roush Racing, that Fenway bought half of Roush Racing as well. Um, 
If I were a betting man, I would slide my chips over to the side that said Vegas expansion team. Hmm. Okay. And but by the way, that will also have buku bidders. You know, that's going to be very attractive to a number of people and entities. So, you know, not the easiest thing to complete, but it seems to fit best into the portfolio of what they're trying to do. That that would just be my guess. So, do do you agree? Do you think they'll go premium? Vegas or, or existing team that might be for sale? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, the not that geographically any of those cities really make yeah. sense for the for the portfolio, uh, but Pittsburgh doesn't necessarily either, and, and and they jumped at the chance for the for the Penguins. So yeah, I think any of those things make sense, Scott. We can stay in the NBA now because last night the the NBA Finals matchup was set: uh, Boston Celtics versus Golden State Warriors. Lots of different directions we can take this, but one thing that I saw that that kind of jumped out to me. Joe Lacob, one of the two kind of controlling owners of the Golden State Warriors, was for a few years a Celtics minority partner. I'm not sure if they, do you know if there's ever been a, 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 an NBA Finals matchup where where one of the owners was a used to be a minority partner with the same ownership group of of the other team. I find that fascinating. Sheesh, put me on you know put me on the spot here. I I, <laughs> I would be surprised actually if it, if it hasn't happened. You know, some, you know, one, one time, I think Danny Ainge years ago told me, I did a story on minority owners, those who have like one, two, three, four percent and why they do it. Yes. Yeah. Everybody just says ego play vanity. That was certainly part of it, but there were, I mean, there were myriad reasons, but one of them was a training ground. Like somebody like Joe Lacob may want to, you know, get involved and see if this is something I really wanted to pursue. Peter Kors told me he was, he bought into the, the Colorado Rockies because he wanted to have a name up for Coors to win the stadium naming rights, which of course they did. Success. Coors Field. So there, there, are, there are many reasons why people do it. Um, I, I would be surprised if it, if it hasn't happened. So I don't know. And uh, let, let's be clear, by the way, since we're talking Boston and Fenway Sports Group, we can say this is one of the things that they don't own. Okay. <laughs> so, so Wick Grosbeck and Steve Paliuka are the majority owners. But one of the things Danny Ainge told me where we're going with this is there were so many limited partners and they would sometimes be in the locker room and they wanted to clean that up that Danny told me I don't even think I could name them all wow. like I, and by the way because if I went into the locker room I'm not sure I could identify them all and you could see where that would become problematic where you have a bunch of folks who will tell everybody I own the team and they have a you know a small chunk uh, thinking it's okay to, to wander around the locker room so they've had to put in very not when I say they, I mean most are around sport, not just the Celtics, but many around sport have looked to strictly define what a 1% owner can and cannot do uh, on a game day on a regular basis. Maybe you get to go on the team plane once, you know, maybe you get to utilize the locker room or the arena for a separate business deal once or twice. Maybe you get the mascot if the team has one. At your kid's birthday party, something you know, Mr. Met was famous for that when they were selling off twenty million dollars stakes. But it's not like, oh, hey, I, you know, I, I can go anywhere I want and and tell the general manager to do what you know, do what I say. Exactly. Yeah, this would be like if if the David Tepper owned Panthers played the the Steelers in the Super Bowl. Yeah, David Tepper was a minority owner of the Steelers just a few years ago before buying the Panthers. And you're right, a lot of times you get. These minority owners that are using it as a springboard, making sure it's something they're interested in, getting their their name and, and, and vetting through the league already to make it easier to make that other purchase uh, in the future. We, we can go back, Scott, to, to, to Joe Lacob and, and Peter Guber, who bought the Golden State Warriors in 2010 for 
$150 million. It was a record at the time. We now value the Golden State Warriors at $6 billion. That is a crazy amount of growth in a little bit over a decade's time. The Boston Celtics obviously are longtime NBA royalty, but what the Golden State Warriors have built in the past decade, largely through the stardom of Steph Curry and a lot of other really talented players, is fairly remarkable from a business standpoint. Well, what's remarkable is that they were able to get a brand new building in downtown San Francisco, uh, you know, we have heard uh, lots of folks with the uh, with the team tell us, "Boy, if I knew then how hard it was going to be, I, I maybe wouldn't have even tried." You know, but it, it is now. I can tell you this: uh, I don't even call it an arena anymore. I call it cash register. It's just designed yeah. to ring, and there's there's a reason why. You know, they're they're skyrocketing in revenue, and you can bet when the NBPA audits the teams in the offseason, as they are, I believe they're allowed to audit five teams, you know, get a sense of where things are, I'd be willing to wager a pretty penny that they will pick the Warriors. Just, just in case they need a little ammo to show how it can be done and let the players know exactly how much money is being generated by not only franchise, but to point out what can be done if a franchise is operated that way. I remember a couple of year, a number of years ago in, in a previous iteration of this podcast, you and I had Rick Welts, the president of, of the Warriors on the yep. show. It was before the arena had opened. So it was a $1.4 billion project. He told us before the arena had opened that they had already committed more than $2 billion from ticket sales, from suite sales, from sponsorships, naming rights, including including Chase, which is where it is right now. It, it was very clear, I think, even before this building opened, that from an economic standpoint, this was going to end up being a really good result for the team. They moved downtown out of Oakland. And timing-wise, Scott, the, the, it, it would have been a lot more expensive if this project had just started two years earlier, or maybe even a year earlier. They caught kind of the the tail end of some supply chain issues, but that's it. Uh, so in some ways, the, the timing was perfect. And I think this is the, the fifth NBA finals that this team is in in the past eight or nine years. The fact that the team continues to be good in this new glitzy money printing stadium makes everything easier as well. Yeah, you also make people sign up for tickets for three years and you know you ladder them. So at no one point do any do any big group of tickets come up in, in one year. So you insulate yourself that way. Yeah, we, yeah, we got to ask the Pagulas, by the way, next time we're talking with Terry or Kim, did they hedge steal? You know, where with with the prices of you know and inflation now, and they're embarking on a new stadium. Did they? Would they? How do they keep the uh, costs under control? And my favorite warrior story that's been told to me, by the way, remember Larry Ellison? You heard of him? Yep. Yeah, you know, I have. Oracle. You know, <laughs> Oracle had the name on the on the old building in, in Oakland. Um, the the way it was explained to me when the Warriors were on the market, well, you know, obviously Larry was one of the bidders, and a banker tells me that he was told. You know, Ellison was told, listen, you're about 40 million shy. Come up 40 million on your bid. And would you say it was 550 or what was 450? 450. Yeah. All right. So 450, come up 40 million. So 10%, you're about, you know, 10%, a little less than 10% below where we need you to be to buy the team. It, again, I have not confirmed this with Larry. This is the story that was told to me that Larry did not believe that that was the case, that this was just uh, sell side people trying to goose the price of a team and get more. And as we know, Joe Lacob bought the team for four hundred and fifty. Think you think Larry regrets that? I, I'm, ge I'm guessing that Larry Ellison it probably wishes back then that he'd gone to four ninety four ninety five to purchase the Warriors, and you know may maybe had an arena downtown and uh, had an asset worth uh, six 
billion dollars, right? And again, flywheel, right? The Warriors are a great brand. There's a lot they can do globally with the superstar and with that brand. And they're in a great city, which also matters, as you know. You can have yeah. you can have a, di- a dynastic team in Milwaukee. It's just going to be a little different than being the, the, this really good, consistent playoff winning team when you're in a city like San Francisco. All right. So, but the thing is, you need to look forward and see the value. You know, the possible value creation. Right. That is also the business thesis beyond big league advance. Really good, good transition. Let's end with Big League Advance uh, because they are looking to raise more money. I'll let you explain exactly what Big League Advance is. I mean, pretty much the name says what it is, but if you don't know, uh, say what it is and what they're hoping to do with the new money. So this company uh, is founded by a former Major League Baseball pitcher named Michael Schwimmer. It, it's an investment firm that invests in, in Major League Baseball talent, or in baseball talent, sorry. And, and the pitch that they make is they find young prospects who are way, way far away from Major League Baseball, but are showing the possibility that they could make the big leagues. And they offer a cash advance in exchange for a percentage of their Major League Baseball earnings if they make the Major Leagues. So they'll give a player, I'm making up numbers here, but they'll give a player $40,000 when they're in single A baseball under under the agreement that if that baseball player makes it to the big leagues, five or 10%, whatever the agreement is, some small percentage of that baseball's, that player's major league baseball earnings go back to the fund. And as you said, this is essentially a look at, it's a scouting algorithm and it's whether or not they can one, predict the talent early enough and convince enough baseball players that they wanna do a deal like this. They're very, very adamant, Scott, that this is not a loan. If, if you take this money and you're in single A baseball and you never make it out of single A baseball, you never pay the money back. It's just a cash. It's just cash that you got. And he said that there are some players out there that, that take this money and retire the day after. That's the one the, that made me chuckle. That when you told me that, that yeah. I got a, a little chuckle out of. So essentially, th- this is a fund that is predicated on having a few baseball players make it to their free agent deals. And How maybe have having you gone this far without one, <laughs> giving the big example? How have you gotten this I'm far? Getting I, thought there. I thought you were going to lead with it. I'm getting there. Maybe having one or two players that hit the jack jackpot. And one of the players they've invested in is Fernando Tatis Jr., who last year, Scott, signed a $340 million extension, one of the biggest free agent deal or one of the biggest extensions in Major League Baseball history. Uh, at the time, Schwimmer, who runs Big League Advance, told me that they gave Fernando more money than they had ever given a prospect ever. Uh, so if you think, let's say maybe it's 10% of his earnings, you're making $34 million just off of that Tatis contract alone. This is a very, obviously, it's a speculative and risky business. If you have a couple more Fernando Tatises, this is a fund that's going to make a lot of money. If you struggle to find people like him at an early age, you're probably going to lose a lot of money. And, and, and from a business standpoint, one of the things I find so interesting about this, Scott, is that it, it just takes so long to know. Right. They gave Fernando Tatis money in 2016. It's very clear that they are going to make money on Fernando Tatis. But they've invested, I think, one hundred and fifty six million dollars so far into 400 players. That's over the past six years. A hundred of them are in the big leagues. A hundred of them are washed out of baseball entirely. And then there's 200 plus that are still kind of grinding their way, could make it to the major leagues, could sign big free agent deals at some point, or maybe will never make it to the major leagues. So, so you're looking at, in some ways, like a 10-year time horizon just to know if this is going to be a profitable fund or not. So I think it's a really interesting business in a lot of different ways. And as you said, they're out there raising $250 million. We'll see if they get there. It's hard to raise money when you don't have a track record. 
It's not like he, he can point to Tatis and say, look, this is a fantastic investment, but it's hard to look at the whole 150 right now and say definitively whether it's going to make this much money or that much money or lose this much money. So it, the fundraising process, I think, is going to be fascinating. All right. Next time Schirmer's around NYC, you got to set up a lunch because I'm fascinated. I want to sit down and, and the calculus and the algorithm. I, I'm fascinated, even though he probably won't tell the specifics or not allow us to share them. I'm fascinated and I want to know more. I agree. And one last thing I will say, because this is for people who are wondering, this is a very controversial business model. There are people out there that that, that think or accuse Michael of essentially exploiting younger players. I don't know the breakdown of how many of the people they lend money to are Americans, how many of them are from other countries. Maybe there's a language barrier that he, Big League Advance was sued a couple of years ago by a, a, an Indians prospect named Francisco Mejia. Uh, he eventually dropped that lawsuit. He, he had said that he didn't know what he was signing at the time. He, he later dropped the lawsuit. But we should say that this is a in a lot of baseball circles and in other sports because it happens in soccer a lot as well. I think Neymar has a kind of similar agreement, uh, which is obviously paying off very well for, for the people that backed him. Uh, yeah, this is a fairly, in, in some ways and, and, and in the eyes of a lot of people, an exploitative model where you're taking advantage of largely poor, talented people at a young age when this cash means a lot and then potentially reaping a lot of money on the back end as well. All right. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter, Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our digital media editor is Cora Veltman. She loves it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will very soon become the Sportico Media Network.